In front of the Magic Kingdom is Disney's Walk Around the World, a pathway that will eventually stretch more than three and a half miles around the Seven Seas Lagoon. Your attention, please. The Walt Disney World Railroad, now boarding for a scenic trip around the Magic Kingdom. <laughs> Who will buy this wonderful morning? Such a sky you never did see. Make a wish. You're about to enter a world of dreams come true. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. We hope that this voyage you're about to take, 20,000 leagues under the sea, will stimulate your interest in the phenomenon of life in the ocean depths. Hello and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 436. And I'm here to help you have the best possible Disney vacation experience and bring you a little bit of Disney magic wherever you are with this podcast, videos, blog, live broadcasts every week, my books, audio tours, and more. You can find everything over at www.radio.com and find out how you can be part of the WW Radio Nation by visiting www.radio.com support. So in my continuing series featuring Disney legends, this week I want to share with you the story and work of Harper Goff, one of Walt Disney's earliest Imagineers. His work on films such as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and in the theme parks is classic Disney storytelling at its best. From the attractions you may know he worked on to a few you probably didn't, I think you're going to leave with a new appreciation of a truly gifted artist. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week and pose a new challenge for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show as I'll have more information about upcoming meets of the month, including February's meet during Princess Marathon weekend, as well as some of your voicemails. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. This is the Global Broadcasting Service, serving remote outposts since 1928. And now, let's get back to our musical program. In my continuing series highlighting Disney legends, I once again want to turn back the clock and look at a legend whose name you might not recognize, but whose work you undoubtedly will. From groundbreaking work in film to the beginnings of Disneyland and early involvement in one of its iconic attractions, Harper Goff's influence is still felt and appreciated today. And somebody else who I love and appreciate, other than you, the listener, is Ryan P. Wilson. He is the founder of MainStreetGazette.com and mayor of Volcania. Welcome back, buddy. Jumbo. <laughs> So uh, Harper Goff, right? As I was starting to do my research and, and put this together, I was thinking about, it, and I think you and I, and if you are a a you know Disney history enthusiast, it's a name you probably know from certain uh, involvement in, in iconic uh, attractions and films. But I think it's probably a name that's not known to ninety nine percent of the guests that walk through the turnstiles. Not that there's turnstiles anymore, but you get the point. Uh, do you think that that Goff? 
is one of these not necessarily well-known Disney legends? I, I think he is. I think it's – and when you consider you know, we, the people who do know him, we know him for one or two pieces and then you know, like we were talking about earlier, you go into the width and breadth of his work and you, you just realize how many things he touched on. You know, and it's one of those things that you – know, and, and as we'll talk about throughout the parks – there are actually so many references to him because he did touch so many of these pieces that it's amazing that he's not more well known. Yeah, and that was one of the things as we were as I was thinking about. Okay, let's talk about the tributes where you can find you know actual references by name to Goff, which I love that Disney does because a lot of times we think of Main Street windows and haunted mansion tombstones, and that's about it because artists don't get to really sort of sign their work. They sign and, and attribute work to them, and there are a ton of references to Goff both in Disney World and Disneyland that we'll hit on at the end. Right. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that. You, they're they're everywhere throughout the parks, and it's because he had that that reach of you know from his background in movies and film and set design that he was utilized across the spectrum of of park pieces. And he touched so much, right? Yeah. We we sort of know him, I think, for maybe two big things: one in the theme parks, one in films. But as you start to dig a little deeper, you find out that he really touched a lot of different aspects, not just of the parks and the films, but even obviously there's uh, and look, it, it was a film that still means a lot to me when I was a child, mm-hmm. you know, an iconic film that you can, you know, his influence is so pronounced. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those pieces, I think, yeah, for both of us, that it was such a big part of our childhood the film, you know, the attraction that was based that that gets based off of it, that it's it's one of those things that you know when we see a piece, it's like, oh, do I need that for my collection? I think I need that for my collection. <laughs> but let's say you know, even as we were going back and, and looking at his early history, right? So it, it, his name is actually Ralph Harper Goff, and he was born in Fort Collins, Colorado. Remember that? That's going to be important later on on the quiz. Uh, back in 1911, and then about nine years later, he moved to California, and. This is where things really start to get interesting. His his father passed away when he was about 12. He did a lot to support himself and so helped to support his family. Uh, he worked summers as a cowboy uh, back in Colorado and then used some of the money he earned to finance his invol- you know to finance his school and he actually bought himself a banjo back in 1925 and taught him help himself how to play because he couldn't afford any lessons, but never until very later on, played with any band or any other sort of group of musicians it was just something that he taught himself and did for himself at home yeah it's and it's it's one of those pieces that yeah we're going we're going to have to reference back to you later on it you know same thing with where he was born same thing with uh you know his name even the Ralph Harper Goff comes back into play later but he did he he was you know back at that turn of the century back as he was growing up he was so pivotal to his family to making sure that they you know had enough that he had to all of his hobbies and interests kind of had to take a back seat and he had to learn those on his own. And things really start to, and here, here's another name that you'll recognize maybe from some of our discussions of other Disney legends. He studied art at Chenard in Los Angeles, like many other people, you know, that was, seems, it was sort of like the Cal arts of its generation, right? That's yeah. where some of the amazing people came from. Right. Because back then you're not thinking about engineering. You're thinking about, Art and design and all of those elements, because we're looking at the you know re, you know the the turn of film and the turn of you know these big set pieces and these massive epics that become huge. So this was this was the place where those people were basically born and raised. Yeah, and and you know obviously the the Chenard Institute has very much a direct 
connection to Walt and Roy and the merger of it with the uh, the L.A. Conservatory of Music to establish what is now uh, Cal Arts. But when we talked about people like, you know, Mary Blair and Bob Mackie and and some of the, and Herbie Ryman, some of the the people who were notable alumni, you know, that was a place that was really churning out some incredibly talented and creative artists. Definitely, and they all seem to find that you know Disney had that knack for for sniffing out a, a true talent, and a lot of them would end up at Disney, uh, but they would find their own very pa- various paths to get there. And Harper was no ex- exception. <laughs> yeah, he so he goes to New York and he's illustrating for magazines and you know little publications like Collier's, Esquire, Coronet, and a little thing called National Geographic. And from there, he actually started to do some advertising stuff for the U.S. Army that led him to help create something that this is like the neatest little bit of trivia that I found about Harper Golf. Right. They approach him to start to, to work on their camouflage that they're using, uh, and it started with these paint-by-number sets that he was creating and color schemes that he was utilizing, and they end up creating a paint that could be wiped off if you're using it for faces and body parts, and, it, but, and he would end up going to the Navy to help them design some of their some of the dazzling kind of effects to to hide ship sizes. Yeah, you know, you don't you you see camouflage and you think, ah, oh, it's just random patterns that are thrown on, but there actually was a science. There was an art to it, and there was you know he worked in Fort Belvoir, which I visited when I was a Cub Scout as a kid with my dad <laughs> in Virginia, to specifically you know we talk about you know guys like Hermie Ryman and and uh, um, and the uh, the importance of color, but he helped to develop a very specific set of paint colors that were ended up being used as standard issue. And it's one of those things that you never sort of thought about. It just camouflage sort of exists out there. But next time you see it, you can think that camouflage actually has a Disney connection. Yeah, it's, it's something that I would have never, ever thought of. And, and you know, we'll, we'll never look at Tony the same way again, I don't think. <laughs> So, again, the circuitous, circuitous journeys that get you from point A to point B, wherever B ends up being. So he goes um, – he comes back to California and starts working in the movie industry for Warner Brothers. And he's doing sets for films like Sergeant York and Charge of the Light Brigade and Captain Blood. He's actually uncredited on things like Casablanca. So he's working on major films in the film industry right in the center of Hollywood. Yeah, little pictures. He started at little magazines. You know, there's a, there's a theme building here, but it's very clearly that that Warner Brothers and Hollywood as a whole recognized this talent very early on with, with these things like Charge of the Light Brigade, Brigade and Casablanca and the, you know things that are iconic to us to look at now that he had a hand in. But it really was what he did when he wasn't working that led to the monumental shift in his career. Right? And I think there is a huge business and life lesson that can be gleaned from this story because you never know what opportunities may arise and when. Right. So Goff was a lifelong model train enthusiast. Yep. Hmm. Somebody, somebody else that we know was also a train enthusiast. You know, it's funny. It's how it really is sort of a small world after all, because he was at the Bassett Lauk train shop in London where he wanted to buy an antique train and the shop proprietor wouldn't sell it to him. Said, look, I think this is being held for somebody else. The guy's supposed to come back later on tonight. If he doesn't take it, Goff, it's yours. So what does Goff do? He goes back that night and runs into the person 
who is supposed to buy it, he looks at the, the other guy looks at him and says, hey, I'm Walt Disney. Are you the other guy who wants to, to buy this train? And then they start talking about what does he do for a living? And he says that he's an artist. And that's where the story really starts to go. Yeah, Walt tells him, you know, when you get back to to California, you know, come and meet with me and let's talk about the things that I'm working on and the things you're working on. Um, but it, it, it's amazing how many times we see this these model trains, these home train sets that you spark these these relationships that that truly are the foundation of the Disney name as we know it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, and at the time, Ward Goff actually knew Ward Kimball mm-hmm. again because of their mutual love of trains. And I had read something in my research that um, supposedly comes from Goff himself where he says that in his conversation with Walt, Walt is saying, you know, I, I know your name, but I, I can't really place where it's from. And Goff is like, why would you know me? You know, I don't I just do illustrations from magazines. They supposedly he invited him out to dinner. They continue talking and he recognized that he did illustrations for Esquire magazine. And at the time, Esquire also had uh, illustrations of ladies that may have not been fully clothed. <laughs> and Walt's like, hey, I'm the only guy that's pulling out these pictures from the magazine and turning them around so the pinups face backwards because I was looking at your illustrations on the opposite side. Yeah, he, it was, you know, it was one of those things where it, it's a weird turn. He wasn't the person using the magazine for, you know, how everyone else was looking at it. He was always trying to find that other piece and what the real takeaway was. Yeah, and, and just, you know, to uh, to close the story out, Walt bought the train. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, Harper uh, lost that on the train, but obviously got an amazing opportunity because when he does go back to the States, you know, it's not, you would think I'm going to land in L.A. and the first thing I'm going to do is call Walt Disney. He, he waited a little while, eventually calls Walt, who puts him right to work and puts him right to work not necessarily in the films, but in three-dimensional types of shows and ideas that he's working on, including something called Walt Disney's Americana, where he wanted this this sort of traveling show to go around the country and to, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but almost have train cars with little jukeboxes in it where people could walk by with miniature scenes of American history. And one of the things that Goff designed was sort of a, a little barbershop that you could look in and look through the sort of old-time, turn-of-the-century barbershop. Walt decides to postpone that idea to work on something else called Disneyland and possibly an underwater true-life adventure film. Yeah, and so he starts having Goff, who has this great film background, kind of design it. At the time, you know, his Disneyland idea was really just this small park across the street from the studio and it starts to blossom and he starts getting bigger and bigger and Harper Goss role gets bigger and bigger. And you have these things where he's, t- he's talking about, you know, they want this, this main street and, you know, some of these side streets and, the, and this is where Harper truly starts to take off. Yeah. And what Walt does again, as Disneyland is just really in the infancy stage of, of being incubated, he hires him to, to start sketching out storyboards for a true life adventure short film, which was going to be called 20,000 leagues under the sea. Instead, Harper's like, you know what? I think this is something bigger. I think it's something better. He loved the Jules Verne novel of the same title. So what he does is he sketches out for uh, storyboards for a potential feature live action film. And he made these huge four foot by eight foot storyboards with all kinds of designs. And those designs really are what sort of convinced Walt and the studios 
to create its first all live action film that they made in the U.S. Definitely, and it was one of these things where Walt had this footage that he had been working with Caltech to get these, you know, these this aquatic life that he wanted to film. And that was what they were supposed to be creating. And instead, he kind of used it as well. What if this is one of those scenes where you know Nemo is explaining about the sea life that they that they're cultivating and about these pieces? And it's just that that picture window that we use this footage for. But we've built this elaborate you know film based off of the Verne's class the Verne's classic tale over the top of it. And Walt kind of begrudgingly gives him the green light to go look at audience, <laughs> talk to audiences about it, and do a do like a screen test of some of these storyboards. And it was so well received that, that that was what convinced Walt to go ahead and and launch into the the first uh, live action feature. Yeah, and it was really neat to read a lot about how Harper Goff took what had only been represented in words on paper and translated that into what would become the iconic vision of the Nautilus, right? He he, you know, Jules Verne had sort of predicted the idea of what the atomic submarine was going to be and he took a lot of he took a little, a little bit of poetic license with things like the, the periscope and and certain things so that he was able to see out from the submarine in the depths but it was really neat and i think the thing that that made the film and made this this story and the imagery so iconic was that that sort of iron rivets on the ship and you know he there was a there was a pattern to it there was an art direction to the the patterns of the the rivets he didn't want it to be like the old you know pulp stories of the 30s that had these sort of uh very slick type rocket ships he wanted right. it to be very kind of gritty and really the the imagery that he came up with is from this this victorian era really sort of helped to lead to what we know as today is sort of the steampunk movement yeah, it, this is kind of the basis of where that all came from, this elegance mixed with this, these rivets and this hard metal you know, pieces. But you know, the great thing was is that, that the book had really given, the, given not a whole lot of detailed explanation. So you're kind of left the, with a very, very simple canvas to work from to design. And so he loved these rivets, and he was amazed when he got to keep the rivets after, after the design. And he, he, he started thinking about what animals really, you know, and were terrifying when you come to you know water and oceans and things like that. And so he kind of he kind of looked at it and said, "I want it to be part alligator and part shark." So you, know, you had this giant eye that was just staring at you underwater. That was the alligator, and then these you know the dorsal fin and the pointed nose of the shark, you know, just cutting straight through the water at you. And that mixed with the rivets just created this image that truly has left its mark on on many many of us. And when you hear that, right, and then you look at that sort of sawtooth type mm-hmm. spine, like you can almost get the sense that there is the animal built into that, right? And he wanted it to be something that was, you know, again, using the materials only at the time, like rough iron yeah. that they took from wrecks, and it's very sort of roughly put together, but it's still is very elegant and very graceful. Uh, again, sort of we, we talk about this, this steampunk, you know, it, that, it had that Victorian elegance and grace, but was very rough and, and rust-colored. And there was, there's such, a, once you start to dissect it that way, you really see the beauty. And I will tell you, I'm a huge 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea fan. I am looking back at my shelf. I have no less than four different models of the subs, both from the film and from the attraction. 
Yeah, I don't. I don't doubt that. I have. I think just as many lying around here. Some of them probably still in boxes somewhere. But it, it, it is. It's one of those images that just you know from the the movie from the ride as kids. It, it just it struck a chord, and you can even see where in the story the way he's created this silhouette that you could totally believe that it was a sea monster attacking these ships, and that was what that was what drove the story. You know, it was interesting too. Um, he's he's not credited with art direction. It says production developed by right even though he did the the nautilus and he did every set and every compartment on the inside uh it's just sort of the way he's listed so if you were to look it almost says uncredited in terms of art direction but that's really what he did there i mean he really designed all those uh you know the nautilus sets inside and out right and it goes so far as to you know with they won the academy award that because he didn't have his union card in the way the rules were at the time he he wasn't given that award it was given to his assistant and he would later get a union card, but they wouldn't go back and, and give him the award that he had actually won for basically designing the entire film. I think the other award that he should have won, too, that he was uncredited was, remember, he taught himself how to play the banjo as a kid. He also taught the banjo to Kirk Douglas so he could at least look like he was really playing it in the film. And I'm not going to sing Whale of a Tale because I want you to keep listening. Right. But now we're both going to have it stuck in our head for the rest of the day. <laughs> You know, and it's funny, go back and watch the film and, and look at Kirk Douglas. Like, I loved him. I, I loved the character. And, you know, he was very much, you know, Kirk Douglas at the time, too, was a huge star. I mean, he was very much a, a sex symbol. He was, and they had worked together previously on on uh, the Vikings. And so so they had this, you know, this the history so that, that they were able to build on. And that's, I, you know, and he wanted his movie to look as authentic as possible. And there we get the banjo skills. But it, it, it makes for just... The story's incredible. The movie's incredible. And we could talk about it all day. Yeah. And, and, you know, this was not the only sub that he ended up designing. He actually did the, the Proteus for Fantastic Voyage, which is the the polar opposite of yes. what this, you know, the, the, the Proteus looks like that futuristic, that it could leave the, the, the depths of the sea and go out into space, just the complete opposite. But it still had some of those Harper Goff-isms, you know, the the... the um, I, I look at the front, you know, paned windows, and it reminds me a little bit of the Nautilus. Yeah, there's always going to be that piece of yourself that you leave in there, and so you know whether it was this this rough, scaly kind of sea monster submarine or this sleek moonship kind of a thing that could that could just launch itself straight into space if it wanted to. You think he, there's still he still had his signature elements in there. And so as 20,000 Leagues comes to an end in terms of production in 1954, this is when Walt brought Goff over. Uh, but I think he was probably working on some of it simultaneously. But this is where he really helped get involved in some of the very early concept art for this Mickey Mouse Park, which became Disneyland, um, which was this, this very radical idea of Walt wanting to create a 3D immersive environment, the true first theme park. And Jeff Curdy, who is the uh, renowned Disney author and expert, you know, sort of dubbed Harper as the second Imagineer because of his early involvement in these in this concept art and early renderings for the park. And he definitely was because he was he had taken his all this knowledge he had done from film directing or from art directing in films and had turned it into how do we create these in real world envi- real world environments that we can use over and over again and put people in the middle of these stories whether it was you know the forced perspective whether it was the use of color 
this was, you know, we think of it now in terms of theme parks, this is commonplace, putting people in the middle of that story. But this was a revolutionary idea at the time, and Harper Goff was truly right there on the ground floor putting these ideas out there. And this is maybe a point where we can talk about, and to a certain degree, dispel sort of a, a common relative mm-hmm. myth, and, and I'm using air quotes and asterisks and italicizing <laughs> to, to sort of set this apart a little bit, because I think when you hear stories and you look at Disneyland, oftentimes you'll hear Main Street USA and Disneyland is a representation of Walt's memories of growing up in Marceline, Missouri. And to a certain degree, that's true. It's his mm-hmm. idealized memories of what growing up in small town America looked like, but the street that you see on Main Street USA and Disneyland does not look like Marceline, Missouri. In fact, it looks a lot like, I mean, down to specific buildings yep. where Harper Goff grew up in Fort Collins, Colorado. Right. Marceline was kind of Walt's nod. He said, he goes, I, you know, I really think this would be a great place to kind of pull from. And Goff took that and said, yeah, you're right. And then went and looked back at his hometown of Fort Collins and started designing from there. And you can, you could see specific buildings, you could see specific corners. Uh, and it all kinds of line up, and you know, there's some great. If you can find, go back and look at turn of the century photos, you can almost feel like you're looking at some of the designs, some of the photos of early Disneyland. Yeah, I mean, Goff even said, "Look, you know, when I was a kid, I, I grew up. I grew up in 1911. I mean, this is exactly the right. time period that we're looking at. It is small town, you know, middle America." And he actually had photographs of mm-hmm. Fort Collins that he showed to Walt that he loved, and he even took a lot of influence from specific buildings in Fort Collins. So if you look at old postcards or photographs, you can see the bank building. You can see the firehouse really, the firehouse in Fort Collins really influencing and inspiring the Main Street USA fire station. There's a Linden Hotel. There's that Victorian City Hall. So all those Mm -hmm. buildings, you know, that Walt wanted, really he was able to pull from his own memories and the photos that he had. He definitely was, and you can, and it's almost one of those things where art imitates life and life imitates art. That now you go back, and some pieces in Fort Collins have, they didn't maybe have that dramatic color scheme that you see in Main Street USA, but now they've gone back and they've re, they've redone some of the paintwork, some of the some of the architecture to model itself to even more closely resemble its you know its involvement with Main Street USA. Yeah, and it, it's you know again if you if you compare. You can really see, you know, and I think it is. I think it's a great marriage of, you know, Walt's memories and Harper's memories and actual, you know, physical locations that that make a very accurate representation of what that street was supposed to be. But, you know, I think when you came to work for Walt, he didn't just give you one job. He gave you multiple jobs to work on (laughs) all at the same time. And you might not realize you know, I think a lot of people may have heard Fort Collins in terms of influencing, but you might not realize Goff's involvement in another classic, iconic attraction, which is the Jungle Cruise. Yeah, this came down to, you know, he had this uh, – Walt wanted these true life adventures, which is really where Harper Goff came in for this – originally on this 20,000 Leagues nature documentary that he wanted him to do. So the true life adventures have always been there. That was going to be Adventureland, and he wanted to have real animals on the river – Realized that that you know possibly wasn't going to happen, but brought Harper Goff in to start designing it, and his love for the African Queen really started setting the ball in motion or boat in motion for the Jungle Cruise. 
Yeah, I mean, they, they realized early on, or somebody politely told Walt, they said, look, Walt, we, we dig the idea of real animals, but here's a couple of things. You know, one, you can't control what their movements are. Two, they're probably going to be sleeping most of the day. And three, they can jump off the, you know, the side and jump into the boat and eat some of your right. guests. Not the best PR move. So instead of making the animals, you know, run alongside the boat or whatever, they decided to have them, you know, moving as the boat went by, you know, stationary, but as the, you know, again, Harper Goff had this interest in animatronics and, and you know, pneumatics and, and hydraulics, you know, animals. And they said, look, let's keep them stationary. Let's keep the boat moving by them and sort of direct. Again, he's sort of directing the artists, directing the scenes as if you would direct a movie. Yeah. And part of this came out of the idea they, that they were having such success with 20,000 Leagues. They wanted to use that squid for, for uh, attraction. They realized that the, that you couldn't hide the wires, you couldn't, uh, and it was in really bad state of disrepair at that point. And so that was where they were like, well, let, what if we go into this African, you know, boat safari, as it were, and truly things take off. We get these animals, you know, we were able to add more animals in than than just one, and go down instead of you know the African Queen, just one area of Africa. We were able to explore all the many rivers around Africa and all these different areas. Whether they were temples, whether they were you know safari belts, all of it became available to Harper Goff to be able to pull from. And, and don't get me wrong, Walt wanted he he was no dummy. He wanted a twenty thousand leagues you know submarine ride. Yeah. But he also, and I think this is probably a little bit of Roy in here, he wanted to build that attraction. At one, when the technology was up to what it needed to be. But more importantly, this was the beginning of Disneyland. He was mortgaging everything he had. Yeah. He wanted to build the attraction from income rather than advanced cash. So from a financial perspective, they decided to hold off on it as well. But that wasn't, you know, Harper Golf also... Uh, as they were working on the Golden Horseshoe Saloon, he he uh, Disney taps Goff because he says, I, I want this to look like, you know, Calamity Jane. What can you do? And tasks him with that project as well. Yeah, and, th- and he has photos from the set and he goes in and he builds a set piece basically from Calamity Jane in the middle of Disneyland. But I think the interesting thing that, that people don't know about Goff, even if you can sort of sense his um, handprint on, on some of these attractions – is his involvement, very early on involvement, with a classic, iconic attraction that exists in all of Disney parks around the world, which is the Haunted Mansion. And I think we know what the story is now and the the, the different sort of exteriors and and loose storyline that exists. But this, you know, the Haunted Mansion... The, the original concepts goes back to when Goff first got there and Walt tasked him first as well as Ken Anderson to come up with an idea of a walkthrough, you know, ghost house or whatever it was going to be. You know, Walt always had a lot of different names for the things yes. that he was coming up with. So if you go back to some of those early designs, the names that you were going to see on it, you know, especially, look, you can go back to the early designs for Disneyland and see an idea for a Main Street and a haunted house. Mm-hmm. Goff was one of the ones that he tapped initially. Absolutely, and it was going to be this area kind of off Main Street. It was actually part of the original idea for just the park itself when it was going to be a smaller thing, but then it became much larger in Disneyland, and it was going to be off Main Street, and there was going to be this – there's this, actually this gorgeous piece of artwork I love that shows this you know old church with the – you know almost like the white church with the steeple and all these horse buggies outside, 
and you start moving up this dusty kind of hill, and there's a cemetery up the hill, and then at the top is this you know rundown kind of clapboard type of house. Thinking, you know, think Norman Bates' house from Psycho or Phantom Manor from Disneyland Paris, sitting at the top of the hill where that would be your haunted walkthrough. Yeah, and and I and like you, I, I love Goff's early art, and it really would have been interesting to see what would have happened and how different it would have been yeah. if the mansion was part of Main Street, right? We had this very sort of rural Midwestern extension off and you go down this dark, crooked path off Main Street, USA, how different uh, that would feel. But, you know, then Marvin Davis comes in, he starts starting to think about, um, you know, something different where he brings in this idea of a, you know, New Orleans themed section of the parks. Sam McKinn had been doing a lot of architectural designs. And then once uh, Ken Anderson really got involved, Mm -hmm. it became more of this, Southern plantation, you know, 19th century uh, to fit in with, you know, turn of the century Louisiana as opposed to turn of the century Fort Collins, Colorado, Marshalline, Missouri, Midwestern America. And and even then you start getting into these pieces where the artwork, you can always see the outside looks run down. The mansion, whether it was in New Orleans or whether it was on Main Street, it looks very run down. And Walt had this you know very, very firm idea that as a new concept, as a new idea, he didn't want guests to think that they were letting their buildings fall into disrepair. So the idea was, you know, the, or the famous quote is that, no, let's let's make it look nice. We'll take care of the outside and we'll let the ghost take care of the inside. Yeah, and you can really get a sense of Harper Goff's influence, like you said, in, uh, in some of the other mansions, especially, you know, being up on the hill – uh, you know, like the some of the other the more the mansions and manors that you find in the overseas parks. Yeah, and it, it's still one of those things. You know, it's one of those, it's one of the lands that doesn't have a haunted mansion. Main Street's never had a haunted mansion, but I, I'm still hopeful that one day some park somewhere will open and it'll be on Main Street, and we'll go back to some of these ideas and we'll get to see that and what it would have truly looked like back then. Yeah, and you know, you wonder too if that was the concept that they started to go with. Mm-hmm. And you had this old sort of phantom, you know, manner. How that might have potentially changed the entire dynamic of Main Street. You know, wouldn't you have had these other offshoots, not with full blown lands, but with individual attractions? I mean, look, we you know we talk about Liberty Street and Edison Square. Right. You know, Main Street would have had a very, very different feel, and certainly would have been much less of a thoroughfare and a shopping and dining area than a place. It would have been the first real land that had attractions in it. Yeah, it would have been much more of a hub of activity. You know, you would have had a few of those restaurants, a few of those shopping opportunities, but there would have been other things to truly draw you in and truly have people talking in the middle of the street. You know, almost, almost you know, talking with the gossip columnists about what's going on in these houses, what's going on in these side streets, what is Edison doing over here. It would have brought so much more life to that area. But then you start looking at dynamics and logistics, and maybe it is better sort of that thoroughfare. We never know because we we never saw it, but it's it, it's definitely something to, to think about and chew on. Yeah, and you know that's it, this is a separate conversation for another show. <laughs> that the very circuitous journey of you know Walt Disney's ghost house to being a museum of the weird and a wax museum and all these different things before it eventually became the mansion that uh, opened in Disneyland and eventually Walt Disney World a couple years later uh, with with very very different. 
result from what the original concepts, plural, uh, versus, you know, scary versus funny ended up being and some of the conflicts that actually came along the way, too. Yeah, you can, and, and you can, it's also one of those things where as you're, you're writing through any, any of these versions, you kind of see that internal battle happening all, at all times, um, and it makes for a wonderful story to really in, immerse yourself in. So nice segue to wonderful story because Goff's involvement in Disneyland and the parks was not just necessarily limited to what he put in terms of pencil on paper. We talked before about he loved model trains, right? He was friends with Ward Kimball. They were also, you know, look, creative people are oftentimes creative in many different ways, many different facets. So he was creative in terms of his art. He was creative in terms of working and refurbishing model trains. He was also a self-taught musician. Mm-hmm. And so was Ward Kimball, right? Ward Kimball, who, wasn't, mm-hmm. who played the trombone, uh, uh, Goff played the banjo. They form and they become part of this seven-piece Dixieland band that played in Disneyland called the Firehouse Five Plus Two. Yeah, it's one of those things. You know, we, we there are so many wonderful albums out there you can still listen to, but it was they, they they were you know this was their hobby and it they formed a group from inside the Disney community and it just kept rolling and they and eventually they did they found their way into the parks to perform and they found you know they weren't just going to be the people who put the park together they were going to leave their you know th- their impression on guests in as many ways as possible. Yeah, and you know the, the Firehouse Five Plus Two is an interesting story as well because. You know, other people who were part of the Disney family, who were other Disney artists, you know, came in and out of the band over time. Right. You know, again, Ward Kimball was there, Frank Thomas, Jimmy McDonald, uh, George Bruns, who was also a trombonist, would sometimes substitute for Kimball. I mean, the band ran from, I think, like 49 to 71 or 72. This wasn't their full-time gig, right? They were still animators and artists or whatever right. else they would do. and But they loved, they just genuinely loved performing and the Firehouse Five, and they weren't limited to Disneyland too. They were in a couple oh. of uh, TV specials, a Mickey Mouse Club. Uh, they, they're even in, in things referenced nowadays, such as um, the Once Upon a Christmas. You know, the Mickey's Once Upon a Christmas. There's a band in there that that stands in for the Firehouse Five Plus Two. So, th- you know, their legacy lives on because they're just still there, and they've always been this this present backing track, almost as it were, to Disneyland. And you actually just helped inspire with this conversation. I just realized what this week's trivia question of the week is going to be because it's going to tie directly in to exactly what we are talking about. Um, All right, so let's go on. 1993 comes, and he is uh, named the Disney legend after he has passed. And you know becoming a Disney legend is really the highest sort of honor that you can have. And and as part of that, and in terms of honors, you you know – and hopefully the first thing you think of is Windows on Main Street, USA. You know, that is really mm-hmm. um, the, the honor that you could have. We talk about the the, the references in the uh, in the Haunted Mansion graveyard for some people. But having your name on a window of on Main Street, USA and possibly elsewhere mm-hmm. is really the ultimate tribute. And I love what they did for Harper Goff because it brought in not just his work, but his passion. Yeah, you know, he has this. You know, it does. It shows his artistic ability, but it also shows his musical ability, and it's just and it's it's one of those windows that's truly unique. Yeah, and the thing that makes it 
unique uh, about his window is that you can find it in Adventureland, Mm -hmm. in Disneyland. So if you're going by the Adventureland Bazaar, there, you know, again, Adventureland, like Main Street USA, like so many other lands, is meant to be a place where people live and work. You'll see a small set of uh, ascending stairs right by the Adventureland Bazaar. And if you look up at the window or you sort of get walk up the 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 stairs, you, there's a gate there, but you can look up. The window says Oriental Tattooing by Professor Harper Goff. And on the lower pane, you also see that in addition to the tattooing, he offers banjo lessons. Yeah, because everyone has a hobby and they'd love to share that <laughs> hobby. Um, it's really great. If you can't really see it really well from that angle, if you're going through the queue of the Jungle Cruise and you're up on the second floor and you're looking out across the, the walkway, it's a, you have a great view of it. And that's not the only one. And I love that the fact that the tributes don't end there and they go not just from in, into Disneyland, but over in Walt Disney World as well. So over in Disneyland, uh, if you go to Trader Sam's, and I hope that you do, by the Disneyland Hotel, you'll actually find a banjo on the wall. And it says, Banjo Lessons, contact H. Goff, Doc 54. Again, 54 being the, the year of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Yeah, and and so and it's you know that's the reference to Disneyland. Like I said, we go to Disney World. It was amazing when I started thinking about it. All the times that I know I've seen Harper Goff's name in some form or fashion everywhere. So it does. It goes into Trader Sam's. It plays into that. You know now this this adventure theme that we have with the SEA and ties into all the parks around the world. He now has that piece that that ties into that, which is you know. Truly, for somebody who built the Nautilus and who built that, you gave us this first sense of true adventure. It's it's a fitting tribute. And his is one of the names that shows up not once, not twice, but over and over and over yep. again in multiple lands. Right. So yep. in Walt Disney World, some of them are big and some of them are small. You have to look for. If you go through the queue of the Jungle Cruise, you know us and our love of crates. Um, there is a uh, a white sort of um, a logo on one of the small crates that says "Chest High Rubber Overpants Crocodile Resistant Goff Brand from Main Street in Fort Collins, Colorado." Every little bit of that, yep. you know, references something different about Harper Goff. Even the address of, of Main Street, it's 1911 Main Street. So that's the year he was born, where he was born. He had that, he was on basically Main Street for Disney from Disneyland for day one. It's, it all just comes, comes right back in together with all of it. And uh, so for a lot of people, if you look, go over to Tom Sawyer Island, you see Harper's Mill. You're like, well, that's obviously got to be about Harper Goff. I, I think this is one that has a dual Meaning, yes. right? I think it's both for Harper Goff and don't forget, Tom, one of Tom Sawyer's really good friends was Joe Harper. So I think it plays into the story of Tom Sawyer, but I think it also is definitely meant to be a visible reference to Harper Goff as well. I think so. I think it, you know you can you can use the story of saying yes, it is Tom Sawyer's friend. This is what happens. You know, this is this is his family's mill. But at the same time, you have this idea of somebody who contributed so much to so much of that park, so many areas of that park. You know. Let's give him a, a big, bold, red side of a building reference. And, and so you made reference to it, too. Uh, in the Skipper Canteen, right? Again, directly across from the Jungle Cruise. He has a direct influence there. There are a number of little and not so little references there. But if you look up in the main dining uh, area, there's a door. Uh, think about sort of the same type of doors that you see over at A Journey into Imagination. There's a door there called that says, 
uh, Harper Goff, and he is he underneath. It says Canteen Cartography, which and and so as we're playing to that theme, you also you move across the park to New Fantasyland, and you get the H Goff Cartography signage outside in New Fantasyland, across from Little Mermaid, uh, and on the backside of the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. It's it's the DVC. Uh, kiosk there, but it's it's his cartography shop. So now, so now we've we've crossed over into a new land. Exactly, and and I get it, right? It, it's under the sea. Yep. It's where Twenty Thousand Leagues Lost. I saw yep. it for the first time. I'm like, oh, this is awesome. But even if you look very carefully, uh, and I look, I, I'm I love the theming and everything from the fonts to the signage to the colors yeah. to the ironwork to the to the lanterns that throughout the parks. God, that's another show for another day. <laughs> but if you look at the, the the sign on top that sort of have a, has a representation of the sun and the moon and the earth, hit Mickey alert, it, it has that same Jules Verne, 20,000 leaguey, steampunky kind of look to it that I, that I believe was very, very deliberate in its design. No, it absolutely was because then if you, if you keep moving up from the sign, up the building, then at the top of it you have a weather vane and the, the piece that keeps it moving is a giant squid that is clinging to this, you know, this old metal kind of you know, rusted coppery kind of feel to it. And, and it, so it just, it just plays as you, walk, as you look up the building. You, see his, you can almost see his story with that film. So there was one that used to be there um, that is is no longer there. Over at Disney's Hollywood Studios, there used to be a Minnie Mouse meet and greet. Obviously, now it is the oh-so-incredibly-awesome launch bay. Um, but there was a, a Jungle Cruise poster there mm-hmm. that had a lot of visuals that really represented the Anaheim Jungle Cruise, Trader Sam's. But in the credits, there were references to John Lasseter, Bill Evans— and Harper Goff. And I don't know if that, that poster has ever made its way anywhere else. I haven't seen it since. I guess that's the only place I've ever remember actually seeing that out and about. Yeah. But I think that the coolest, probably most overlooked reference to Harper Goff is at the Haunted Mansion. That's where you have to go back and know his whole name in order to catch the reference. I totally dig this. And look, I love, love, love the interactive queue. I think it is worth taking a few extra minutes to go through. Go slowly. Let other people pass you if need be. Because when they did this update a number of years ago, they added some very cool, again, interactive elements. And if you want to maybe communicate with, uh, with those in the afterlife, maybe Prudence Pock there is that little microphone so that you can speak to her in the afterlife so she can better understand you. And the plaque reads, SpectreCom, speak with the nearly departed, patented R.H. Goff. Drop the mic and walk off stage. That's right. You have to have so – so the Goff name will, will get you there, but you have to have – if you didn't know that the thing was his, true, his first name was Ralph, the RH may throw you off. So you have to have that piece. But it is. It's for those nearly departed. You know, they're not, they're not quite gone. And we're going to see some more of them as we get further in. Um, but you're right. I think this, you know, this redesign of this queue and these elements are so fantastic. I think some of my favorites are even you know, the, the bus at the beginning where it's, it, that's truly a game. If you sit there and you study those long enough, you realize there's a game in front of you. And, and it, puzzling that out is fantastic. And then, you know, whether it's saying, you know, hello to Master Gracie or, you know, looking for some bubbles or playing some music, it's, there's so much there and it's, 
you know, it is truly telling that that he was on the forefront of this attraction that he is now given that name outside. Yeah, I like I like what you said. Nearly not it nearly departed like mostly dead. <laughs> right, <laughs> your right. Frankenstein reference. <laughs> <laughs> and I I can't seem to locate my in my photos because I am awful about taking my pictures and actually categorizing them and tagging them as I should. But I would almost bet um, a, a burger at Cookie's Barbecue on Castaway Key um, on the Disney Cruise Line. There are a number of tributes like this, especially to a lot of executives. You'll see Iger's name and Stag's name. I could almost swear that I had a photo of a reference to Goff there. I think partially what we're doing part because of the sunken 20,000 leagues under the right. sieve that's there. I, I would I would think you're right. You know, it's one of those places I've never actually gotten myself to. Um, I, I'd be willing to bet that you're that you're absolutely right that there is something out there. Yeah, and and I would hope that we haven't missed any. You know, you never know. And and the thing about the tributes too is that you know they come and go and they change uh, all the time. And I look, I, I love the fact that current Imagineers, you know, honor and respect. The, the original Imagineers that got them there with these subtle tributes and that there isn't necessarily a plaque explaining who that is. I want people to, and that's the purpose of why I, I do the right. show and some of these segments is we want people to understand why they're there and what they mean and to dig a little bit deeper and peel back some of those layers. Yeah, it's definitely, yeah. I mean, it was one of the driving forces as to why I started all this because there are so many stories there and it's, it's not just the, the crafted stories that you find, okay, you know, this R.H. Goff crafted this Spectrocom. It's, but who was that really? Why is he important to this area? Why is he important to this attraction? That sometimes people miss, that sometimes don't get explored. And I, and I do. I think it's at the heart of what you and I and, and many others do with all of these. So a number of years later, again, after he leaves Disney, um, he works on films like Fantastic Voyage, which you should go back and watch too. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're beautiful, especially if you take, um, if you look at when they were made, right, and right. the effects that were used at that time. But he was also the art director for one of my favorite movies. It's not Disney. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, a movie that was so influential in my childhood that I have passed down to my children whose... It still makes me get choked up and sing along throughout it. But you might not know that Harper Goff was art director of 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. You know, you start looking at some of the pieces, though, and it all starts to come together and it starts to make sense. That, you know, it's like we talked about with the Proteus. There are those there are those Harper Goff pieces that actually do bleed through, whether it's that, you know, some of the machines and the steampunk almost elements to those or the boats. Um, some of the bigger set pieces that you can clearly see he's he's borrowed some of the ideas that he's learned from Disneyland and the construction of that. Um, but but you do, you see it there and it, it's one of those things that, it's one of those films that's I, I think a classic for all of us at some point in our lives. Yeah, and there's, you know, that that's a, the story of how that film got made um, is, is really wonderful mm-hmm. too. But he spent so much time and so much effort, as I think he must have done with everything that he did, trying to find just the right location. Yeah. Right, so he centers the film 
really around the massive chocolate room, right? That's sort of the hub of, of right. everything that takes place in the chocolate factory. But he couldn't find a location that was big enough, that sort of screamed what he wanted to be. So he looked at chocolate factories and beer factories like in Spain and Europe and all over until he finally ends up in Munich, Germany. And the thing that I love and the, the bit of trivia I always like to share with people is... And I think this and this was done in in Goonies as well with the the giant pirate ship scene is he didn't let the actors see the set until they were actually filming. So when they walk in and they're wide eyed and agaped and they're just awestruck and there's that childlike wonder and awe like that's real, man. Like that's authentic to what they saw and they felt. And I think that was just brilliant on so many levels. I I, I always think that's a a brilliant thing to do when you kind of have a big reveal a big set piece it's you know why do you want to you know why do you want them to act or reenact what their original saw with that when when you can actually capture that moment truly on film and, and they can it, it's just so authentic at that point you know and, it, and i think it's the same way with how some of these you know some of the reveals even in the parks are it's it's a slow reveal and then all of a sudden you come around the corner and oh look there's the castle in it and it's that you have that true emotion too so it's it's that very similar feel uh, and i think it's wonderful when they're able to do that with film yeah, and if you um, if you look back at some of the old original set designs that Goff drew, I mean they are beautiful. I mean, yes. and there's a there's a color one that's out uh, that you can see. I mean, it looks if you look at the film, it looks so much like his original concept. He was so didactic and detailed, even in terms of the color scheme. And then I think that if you if you go back now and watch. Watch the film, but go to that scene and you see that big reveal, right? It's, it's all about storytelling, it's also about the reveal. And know now that it was done by Goff, you see so many elements that you can pull out from a film like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and the design of the Nautilus and some of the interiors that you can definitely translate into that set um, for, for Willy Wonka. Yeah, it's absolutely like, you know, like I said, you're. Truly, everyone who does who who does art direction or does anything in your life, you're you're uh, amalgamation of all the things that you've done and all your own history, and uh, and of course, part of those are gonna are gonna shine through, and and it's truly great to see where you can see the the fingerprints of Harper Goff on film. So, moving forward, uh, again, Harper Goff um, was given his Disney Legend Award in 1993. Um, I, it's boy, he's one of the people that. I love being able to talk to you about it. I wish yeah. I would have had the opportunity to to speak with him directly and, and hear more about it. But going forward, Ryan, and this is something that we've been starting to talk about mm-hmm. a lot more recently, is Disney's decision to remake a number of films, um, putting a different spin on it. Right. Maybe, maybe they're prequels, maybe they're sequels. Uh, some, I think... I'm excited about some. I'm like, Pete's Dragon is perfect. You don't remake Pete's Dragon. <laughs> 20,000 Leagues is sub- currently, uh, I believe, been greenlit, um, and it is going to be remade. It's not going to be a prequel or a sequel. Um, I, I know David Fincher was sort of attached to the project as, as early as 2010, right? So we're looking like six years ago. But now Brian Singer... Um, another sort of A-list director, and you may know that name from such films as the X-Men movies, has been attached to it. Uh, a screenplay has been written, 
and obviously it's still based on Jules Verne. When you hear 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea remake, what's your first reaction? It's one of those things where it's like, okay, it is Disney, so I'm like, you know, when somebody, if it was somebody else outside of that, I would be, I would immediately be like, okay, well, it's, it's going to be their take. It's that's fine. When it when it comes to that, it's an in-house name. It's I get a little nervous because it is so iconic. It is so classic. I'm not sure it's one of those films that needs to be touched. Uh, and then how much of that original iconic imagery and the, the you know the, the original pieces and that you know like we talked about that riveted Nautilus and prowling through the water how much that is going to bleed over into this version and how much of that is going to be left with like no we're doing our own thing you know and at that point you almost get that you almost get that terrifying thought of but but why why would why wouldn't you go back and look at that so i i'm I'm somewhere in between excited and terrified. <laughs> cautiously, opti- cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic. <laughs> right, and, and you know you and I and he actually tweeted uh, back in September on his 50th birthday. He tweeted um, an image of the cover of the script, and he says, "Look, I promise it is going to be an epic and emotional adventure, which I think the original was for yep. all ages." He says it's an adventure that's very dear to his heart, and I see that. And that instills in me a level of confidence like this is not just another project. This is a project that I care about because I saw that film as a kid. I watched the 1954 movie over and over again. And it's something that he really wants to do. Again, not just telling an adventure story, but with the reverence and the respect um, to the original. Yeah. And, and, so, and like I said, I am cautiously optimistic about it. I'm hopeful. Obviously, it's had long development time, so they they clearly want to make sure they have it right. They, you know, I think maybe there are lessons to take from even Star Wars this year. You know, they, they went back, they looked at what made the original so great, and then they've you know they've made those elements and they've you know tightened it up for for made it a more modern story. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe we see a character named Goff in the movie somewhere. <laughs> I was going to say, I wonder if there's going to be Harper. Har- there has to be some Goff references. And, yeah. and look, you know, this might be a film if done right. And like you, mm-hmm. you know, I, I trust, I, I trust this company because when they do things like this, it, the disappointments are much more rare than right. the home runs. Uh, you know, maybe this is a film, Ryan, that reignites a a story and a franchise, especially for a younger generation. Sometimes it's tough to get your ten year old boy to say, "Hey, mm-hmm. let's watch this movie that's seventy years old." Oh, look at the special effects; yeah. they're lame, and I can see the wires. <laughs> but then you retell it with that same type of storytelling element, and all of a sudden, they become as excited as you are, and you were. And now they want to go back, and I almost did my really bad James Mason again, but I'm not going to do it. But they want to see the original, right? They want it, yeah. you know, they want to hear the music and get excited about it again. So that's one of the things that ex- excites me, you know, as as a parent. And it is one of those things where if you, you, you look at Tokyo Disney Sea and you see Volcania and you see all the stories and things that have unfolded there – that are perfect fodder, you know, whether they are a Jules Verne story or whether it's just something that's kind of been like tied together in our minds through that through that land and that park. That okay, yes, let's take this and let's you know let's develop these stories. Let's go, let's explore Volcano. What can we do here? It you know it's always that hope that that it is something that you know as much as as much as franchises have taken over film as a whole, this is one of those prime areas where I think that that we're we are all set to go back and visit this era of exploration and adventure 
and we're just ready to take those next steps until hopefully this can ignite that. And look, uh, I will say this because I, I loved the attraction, and I, and I recently had done like a, a, a survey in our in the W Radio Nation private Facebook group, asking people what their favorite extinct attraction was in Walt Disney World. And yes, there was a lot of Horizons, and yes, there was a lot of Mr. Toads. But I and many many others would bring back in a heartbeat twenty thousand leagues under the sea. I've told the story. I've got a porthole sitting in my garage that one of these days I'm going to mount on my wall. I've got the models on my shelf. I've got, you know, soundtracks and I've got the film. Man, I would love, love, love to see a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea attraction come back. And who knows, man, maybe this is uh, maybe this is the attraction. Maybe this is the movie. And maybe this is the time to, uh, to have something like that come in and or come back. But if you love Disney history and the details and the minutiae and the stories and beautiful photography, please pull the and car food. over and food, obviously um, <laughs> pull the car over, get off that ridiculous treadmill and go to MainStreetGazette.com. It's MainStGazette.com and check out all that Ryan is doing. Where can they follow you on the Twitter? Same place at MainStGazette on Twitter, on Instagram, so, and, and I'm there, and I love to have these conversations. I love to share these tidbits there, too. So anytime you want to find me, anytime you have a question, throw them at me. Yeah, and please come by the show notes at www.radio.com. You can go to www.radio.com, click on podcast, go to this week's show, keep the conversation going there. And if you like this episode, don't forget to share it on Twitter, on Facebook, the Gram, MySpace, friend feed friendster whatever social platform of yours is of choice and ryan this is just the first of many many other segments that we have about disney history and details and wayback machines so i cannot wait to do this again that list gets longer and longer every day but i enjoy every minute of it thanks brother all right Time for our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details in what you see and maybe sometimes in what you hear. And if you think you know the answer, you can enter via email for your chance to win a Disney prize package. Before we get to this week's question, let's go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week I had asked you which Walt Disney World resort was used in the Beach Boys music video for the song Kokomo. And I asked you not because I was in a Beach Boys kind of mood, but clearly still in a Grand Floridian kind of mood. Because back in 1988, the Tom Cruise movie Cocktail came out and needed a soundtrack that was provided by the Beach Boys. And although the song Kokomo from the film wasn't released as a single, the Beach Boys were playing it a lot in their concerts They were getting a great audience response, and so the idea of a music video was born. It was to mix clips from the film Cocktail, as well as the Beach Boys lip-syncing, and their background was at the newly opened Grand Floridian over at Walt Disney World, along with Full House star John Stamos playing or pretending to play the drums. The video was a big hit on VH1 back when VH1 used to play music videos. And by October, Kokomo was the most popular song in the country. 
Anyway, you're saying that's all well and good, Lou, but did I win? Well, I'll tell you, I took all the correct entries, and again, there were hundreds again this week, so thanks to everybody who entered. I took all the correct entries and randomly selected one. Don't forget you are playing for the 102 Ways to Save Money for and at Walt Disney World book, all seven of the audio tours, a WDW Radio Magic Band cover, and a mystery prize. So, last week's winner, randomly selected, is... Lanair Francis from Hanville, Louisiana. Lanair, congratulations. I will get your prize package out to you right away. Hopefully, I will see you when I come to New Orleans at the end of February for our On the Road event. Anyway, if you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So we are talking about Harper Goff this week and his involvement in the band The Firehouse Five, and your trivia question this week is to tell me What Disney movie pays tribute to this band? I'll give you a hint. What Disney animated feature film pays tribute to the Firehouse 5 plus 2? Now, because I'm going on the WW Radio 9th anniversary on Star Wars Day at Cruise... Day at Cruise. See, I'm mine's on my cruise. And the Star Wars Day at Sea Cruise next week. I'm going to give you two weeks to answer this question. So you have until Sunday... February 14th, happy Valentine's Day in advance at 11.59 p.m. to email your answer to contest at www.radio.com. Again, you're going to play for the 102 Ways book, all the audio tours, and a Magic Band cover. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you again so much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. I mean it when I say that I understand how valuable your time is and the fact that you choose to share some of it with me means so much. And I hope that the show put a smile on your face and maybe had a little bit of a positive impact on your day, on your week, on your month, and hopefully on your upcoming trip to Walt Disney World. Thanks again, as always, to the members of the WW Radio Nation. I sincerely appreciate your love and support and friendship. And if you want to help support the show and get great exclusive monthly rewards, including scavenger hunts, access to a private group, group video calls, personalized Magic Band covers, logo gear, t-shirts, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World and more, you can visit www.radio.com slash support. Be sure to visit www.radio.com. Check out all the other great content from our team of blog writers there. Subscribe to our free email newsletter and check out our videos as well. In addition to the show, please join me every Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. Eastern as I broadcast live on Facebook. If you follow me at facebook.com slash Mangello, turn on notifications. You'll get notified as I chat and broadcast every Wednesday night, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, as well as other times from around the parks and when I'm on the road. Also, be sure and check out the events page at www.radio.com to get notified about upcoming meets of the month and events on the road. The next meet is going to be Saturday, February 19th in Walt Disney World. That's going to be doing Princess Marathon Weekend. Don't have the exact location locked down as yet. Figure it'll be probably somewhere around 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Also, tickets are available for our meet Eat and Run in New Orleans. Our on-the-road event is February 26th through the 28th. So if you are in the New Orleans area or want to come down and enjoy a great time with good friends and amazing food and even run in the New Orleans Rock and Roll Half Marathon, tickets are now available. I'm also going to be in the Philippines in March, Iowa in April, Chicago in July. And you can join us for our e-ticket adventure on the Disney Magic from New York to Puerto Rico. Again, to find out more, visit www.radio.com slash events. 
Stay tuned for other on-the-road events around the country and around the world as I travel a lot this summer and fall to speak at conferences and to schools. And if I can maybe come to speak at your school or at your event, whether it's about Disney, customer service, podcasting, new media, social media, following your passion, or a variety of other topics, visit lumangelo.com. Click on either the speaking or the schools page. And if I can help you turn your passion into your profession, click on the work with me tab at lumangelo.com. See if I can maybe help you do what you've allowed me to do, which is something that you love each and every day. Thanks as always to Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official and recommended travel provider. Whether you're going to Disney World, Land, Cruise, Alani, any Disney destination or any destination around the world, visit mousefantravel.com. And I am so grateful again to Becky and her team, not just for sponsoring our cruise coming up this week, but our on-the-road event in New Orleans later on this month. Again, visit mousefantravel.com for a free, no-obligation quote. Go to celebrationspress.com to get Celebrations Magazine delivered to you every other month. And as always, my friends, and you are my friends, all I ask is that if you like the show, please take a minute, help spread the word, tell your friends, post in your favorite Facebook group, tweet out that you're listening, and please go to www.radio.com slash iTunes, rate and review the show there. It is so helpful, so important. Thanks to you. We have more than a thousand five-star reviews. You help the show reach number two overall among iTunes podcasts, and it really means a lot to me if you could. I want to thank some recent reviewers, including Mrs. Mum Aw, M R S M U Ms. Mum Aw, Mrs. Mum Aw, Jess TV, Squeeblenaut, Derek and Marissa Marin, and Sue and Jordan, who said, Lou, you had us at Mac and Cheese. Again, visit www.radio.com slash iTunes, or just go to iTunes and search for WW Radio. And finally, and most importantly, I want to say thank you again to you for taking the time and allowing me to share my passion for Disney with you. I believe I am so incredibly blessed and fortunate for the ability that you give me to do what I do. And I want you to do the same thing. So remember, it's not about being lucky, right? Good luck is the result of good planning. And opportunity will always favor those who are prepared because you never know when the right opportunity will come by. So as they say in The Lion King, be prepared. Have an amazing week. Have chocolate for breakfast. I mean, they only said be prepared in The Lion King. I said the rest, but you know what I mean. And thanks again. So until next time, see ya. Hi, Lou. This is Linda Lammers from Franklin, Wisconsin. I just wanted to take this opportunity to wish bon voyage to everyone who's going on the Star Wars cruise with uh, the WDW radio group, Um, especially all the new friends I made on Lou's cruise to Alaska this past June on the Disney Wonder. Everyone better post lots of pictures for me to drool over. Can't wait to see all of you again one day. Bye and have a great day. Hey, Lou. It's uh, Rob from California, Maryland, just another 11 miles down and 20 days until the Princess Half Marathon weekend and Glass Slipper Challenge. I had to take uh, last week off because of uh, Snowmageddon, Apocalypse, Sharknado up here. And uh, But uh, fortunately, I had a little bit of padding in the schedule, so right now I'm exactly on schedule and uh, firmly in the why am I doing this part of training. Just wanted to be over, and I uh, just want to get down there and meet you and the rest of the WDW Radio Running Team. Can't wait to see you guys. Have a great weekend. See you in a few weeks. Bye. Hey, Lou. It's Liam from Buffalo, New York. 
I'm making a trip down to Disney World on Valentine's Day. So it'll be cool. Uh, cool to see you there. I'm really excited. The podcast is getting me hyped for it. <laughs> I love listening to the, po- the show at work. Um, actually there right now. And on the bus to school, really, podcast gets me through those horrible cold mornings. Also, hi to Darlene Maggie, who seems to call your show a lot. She lives right by me, so I thought that was pretty cool. I just want to say thanks for all that you do, Lou. Podcast is really great, and I really enjoy it. So, yeah. See ya. Good morning, Lou Mangiello. It's Darlene Maggie from West Seneca, New York. And it is 45 degrees in 11 days only. You guys will be on the Disney Star Wars trip of a lifetime with a full day of Star Wars adventures. I wish I was on this cruise, but please, like I said in the past, take pictures for all of us that can't be with you. Now, on to something else, 282 days until our e-ticket adventure out of New York City on the Disney Wonder, or, uh, no, Magic, we did Wonder in Alaska. (laughs) Um, It's going to be so phenomenal to go to St. Martin and Tortola, I said that right, and to Puerto Rico. Oh, it's going to be an adventure. Cannot wait to see all of my friends again on that cruise that are going. Have a great day. You've got a friend in me. Yeah. I think we've been submerged too long. Stand by to surface. Aye, aye. Stand by to dock. Bridge, aye, aye. All ahead, one-third. Stand by the mooring lines. Now, when the cabin lights come on, please stand and disembark to your right. Take small children by the hand and watch your step up the ladder. Please use the handrail. All ashore, please. All ashore. <laughs> 